BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Today in our conversations with great minds, we have Dr. Jack Bradich with us. He's the associate professor at the Department of Journalism and Media Studies at the School of Communication and Information with Rutgers University. Rutgers.academia.edu is that website. His Twitter handle is jbradich, B-R-A-T-I-C-H. And uh, Dr. Jack Bradich, welcome to the program, and thanks so much for dropping by today and doing an hour-long deep dive with us about this whole QAnon cult and where it came from, where it's going, what it is, all that kind of thing. Can we start out by defining terms? What is a cult and what is QAnon? Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, well, a cult, I'm not an expert in cults. I tend to write about conspiracy theories, but I will say that the difference between a cult and a religious movement is often the way that the fervor or the fanaticism that's attached to either a single figure or a way of believing in the world. That's how they often get called. But I would say that, you know, I think QAnon, maybe we'll, we'll get into this, somewhere, you know, a shade between a cult and something that's fairly standard in a kind of religious movement, too. But it's certainly the devotion of the adherence is really at the core of a lot of that for a cult. Would it be just by, you know, by way of uh, kind of coming up with a layman's definition here that a religious institution generally has, a, you know, like the Catholic Church, you know, or the mainstream Methodist, whatever, the Judaism, Islam, that the basic purpose is to help individuals achieve some sort of union with God or some sort of higher understanding of life, that it's focused on the people who are members of it as opposed to in a cult, the focus tends to be on leadership, sometimes secret leadership, and the leadership issues dictat, you know, issues uh, commands about how one must think and how one must view the world. And I realize that, you know, religions have catechisms too, but, but that this is shifting the power and the focus from the people to the cult leaders. Is that, you think that's a reasonable starting point? I, I think that's reasonable. I, th- I think the, how focused it is on the leader actually makes a, a huge difference. And I think the way that people find their, their purpose in life only through the commands of a leader, I think, can really be the, the core difference between a cult and a religious yeah. movement. So to QAnon, where are they on this spectrum yeah. and what are they all about? Yeah, what we just said, is, it's interesting because there is no leader in that sense of the classic cult. I mean, there is this mysterious figure that goes by the name, or many people go by the name of Q, that have, you know, created and dropped clues onto the internet that then people have picked up and interpreted and kind of formed a movement around it. I think of QAnon as a kind of internet-enabled, religiously-based or spiritually-based Trumpist social movement, born of the internet, but really born out of Trumpism, too, with a very kind of reactionary spiritual dimension to it. Can we break that down a little bit? What is the spiritual part of it? What is the Trumpist part of it? And who is Q? Right. Well, I mean, there are entire podcasts devoted to trying to figure out who Q is. And so, so I think a lot of people are, are really trying to figure out who that might be. 
what I would focus on is sort of breaking it down more into the kind of political and then the religious side of it. So let's just say that, you know, we'll start with, you know, it appeared in, on an image board called 4chan in October 2017. This figure Q starts creating these mysterious posts, right, including the prediction early on that Hillary Rodden Clinton would be arrested soon, right? So you can already hear in that the kind of Trumpist locker up chants that are now finding new expression in this internet arena and all that Republican obsession with the Obama administration, even after Trump got into office. Right. So, so part of this is coming out of an already existing culture of fixation on Democrats and locking them up. Right. So about a few months later in August, 2018, Q and believers start showing up at Trump rallies, right. With images of Q and Q on their shirts. And they start kind of forming more of a, something resembling a community. It's not an organization. So I think, I think one of the interesting things, I, I've never heard of a QAnon adherent who's also a Biden supporter. I might, I, I, maybe there's somebody out there that could really change my opinion on that. But, but for the most part, the, the Venn diagram of those two communities overlaps quite strongly. So, so that's part of the, of the kind of Trumpism that the Democrats, we can get into the core beliefs of QAnon in a second, but really the Democrats are more than just an adversary politically. They are also a, a spiritual enemy because of the things they are alleged to be doing. So that's the kind of the more Trumpist side of it. Get into the religious side of the spiritual side, right? So the core kind of belief in QAnon, and there are a variety of conspiracies that can be, conspiracy theories that can be attached to this, but the core belief is this. There's an elite cabal that has corrupted America. That cabal is in league with Satan. There's a small secret group in the U.S. military that's ready to expose and fight that cabal. And Donald Trump has, you know, gives them the blessing and might be the kind of leader of that fight. But that that cabal is basically housed inside the Democratic Party. Other theories that people might be familiar with can be hung on this thread, things like Pizzagate, coronavirus is fake, vaccinations do more harm than good, JFK Jr. is alive, and even broader ones. So, so it's the general template is that, that there's a kind of new world order and that the, most, the current expression of that new world order is these kind of bloodthirsty Democrats and figures in the Democratic Party who, among other things, sacrifice children, drink their blood, eat their hormones, traffic and sex trafficking with children, as well as pedophilia networks. So, so back in the back in the early 20th century, the czar of Russia commissioned his czar Nicholas II's commissioned his secret service to come up with basically something that would justify taking the wealth of Jewish bankers and Jews in general in Russia. And they came up with this protocols of the elders of Zion, this phony baloney thing that Hitler hung a lot of his stuff on. And one of the teachings of that, essentially, I'm not sure it was in protocols specifically, but it became it was this idea of blood libel, that Jews would drain blood from non-Jewish children and use that for matzah, for the bread that they eat during the high holy holidays. Has that just been transplanted over into the QAnon conspiracy? Yes. I mean, anti-Semitism is at the core of a lot of this, right? Between the blood libel, the fixation on certain families that apparently, you know, rule the world, primarily the Rothschilds for them, as well as the kinds of more kind of like secular anti-Semitism around George Soros funding all of Antifa and, the, and, and BLM, right? So, so the kind of fixation on Jewish control is at the center of a lot of the narrative of QAnon for sure. This, this is just a fascinating thing. We're talking with Dr. Jack Bradich. He is the associate professor at the Department of Journalism and Media Studies School of Communications Information at Rutgers University, an expert on QAnon. J-B-R-A-T-I-C-H is his Twitter handle. We'll be right back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Doing a deep dive into wacky right-wing conspiracy theories. More right after this. It's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today I'm reading from The Prophet's Way, A Guide to Living in the Now. It's actually a compilation of diaries and letters that I sent to friends on travels around the world. And it's kind of an autobiography, I suppose, of sorts. This is from Life in a Teepee. It's on page 25. 
And it starts with a quote from Lenny Bruce. Every day, people are straying away from the church and going back to God. My best friend through school was Clark Stinson. We met when we were 13, and instead of pursuing the normal pastimes of teenagers, we spent our time studying Sanskrit. We had an old study guide book I found in my father's library, reading the Tibetan Book of the Dead and arguing minutia from the Bible. Clark's mother was interested in metaphysics and shared a book called Autobiography of a Yogi with us. Years later, when I went to Detroit with her and Clark to attend an initiation in Kriya Yoga by Yogacharya Oliver Black, the oldest living disciple of Yogananda, I recognized Yogananda's Kriya technique as identical to an ancient Coptic exercise Master Stanley had taught us years earlier called the Cobra Breath. I introduced Clark to Master Stanley and Lee, and Clark and I began a serious study of spirituality. We were both in our late teens by then, and Clark had recently married. I was recovering from a painful breakup with a girlfriend, and we agreed that to do our spiritual work best, we should seek isolation. So Clark and his wife bought a teepee, and I bought one, and we three gave away everything else we own in the world, except some clothes and our spiritual books. We bought 100 pounds of wheat, 100 pounds of dried fruits, some basic camping equipment, and got a ride into, up into Michigan's Upper Peninsula, where an old trapper led us on a three-day trek back into the Chippewa National Forest to a small lake that isn't on most maps. We spent the summer there, Clark and his wife on one side of the lake, me on the other. Three days a week, we practiced silence and did meditation and prayer every day for hours. I had a pet tachnid fly, a small insect that looks like a honeybee, but is actually a fly. When I'd meditate in the morning on my blanket outside my teepee, he'd come and hover just over my right hand as if he were drawing nourishment from me. Sometimes he'd hover there for as much as 20 minutes. Occasionally, he'd land and walk around with careful steps like an astronaut exploring a distant but friendly planet. I also shared my teepee with a large and furry brown and black wolf spider who came out at night as the sun set and picked the sleeping mosquitoes off the canvas on the west side of my teepee. I watched the play of life and death, predator and prey. Here's an odd synchronicity that Carl Jung would have appreciated. I haven't seen a tachnid fly for years, but as I'm typing these words into a laptop computer on my back porch in Atlanta, one just hovered over my left hand for a few moments and then landed. He's here with me as I'm sitting as I'm typing, sitting on my hand. One cold and rainy afternoon, Clark and I were walking through the woods looking for berries and edible plants. We'd gotten pretty skilled at identifying what was safe and what wasn't, and were filling a bag with leaves and fruits. This must be what our ancestors lived like, Clark observed, hunting and gathering. Except we're vegetarians, so we're just gathering, I said, joking. But to Clark, it wasn't a joke. Seriously, what we call civilization started when humans started farming. But humans like us were around for tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of years before that, fully conscious, awake, aware, thinking and feeling just like us. But they were hunters and gatherers instead of farmers. I said, without agriculture, there'd be no civilization. It was an interesting thought. Remember Miss Hemmer, Clark said? Miss Hemmer had been our eighth grade biology teacher and one of the best teachers I'd ever known in my life. Clark and I had conspired to make her life difficult, but we also loved her and learned more from her each month than from any of our other teachers in a year. And she was a huge fan of Margaret Mead. Clark said, she said that in primitive societies, there isn't suicide, depression, drug addiction, all that stuff. The noble savage, I said, shivering. I'm skeptical and cold. And the Indians who lived here once were probably cold, too. He shrugged and said, this life seems much more natural to me. At least I had to agree with that. A few days later, Clark came running over to my teepee with his Bible all excited. Look at this, he said, pointing to Genesis 4-2. It says, Cain was a tiller of the ground. The Bible is talking about how the first murderer was also the first farmer. And in the 25th verse, it makes it clear that Abel, the brother who was not the farmer, was the one who loved God the most. So what, I said. It's a classic archetype of the oldest child being the most beloved, but also the one who screws up. It's all over, from Greek mythology to Shakespeare. Don't you see, Clark said, Adam and Eve were gatherers like we are now. They walked around the Garden of Eden and picked up food. But then they tasted of the knowledge of good and evil, of life and death. That's your food supply. You live or die by it. When you live as a gatherer, you live by a whim of nature. If there's no food, you die. When you begin to store up food, you can defy nature and survive a drought. You then have the power to control life, the knowledge of life or death, or good and evil. So the tasting of the apple must have meant that Adam and Eve experimented with agriculture, and in doing so, they defied the God of nature. It's a warning. It's saying that the primitive life of hunting, gathering, and herding was more in accord with nature's way than is agriculture. Clark dove deep into the issue. 
but I didn't consider it all that important at the time. I couldn't see how when people started farming after the end of the Ice Age, it had been such a bad thing. After all, it brought us modern society and science. Clark, however, was totally certain that agriculture and what he called the organized ones were responsible for the coming death of the earth. The book, The Prophet's Way. So, Dr. Bradage, which came first, the anti-Semitism or some specific component of the Q conspiracy theory? Actually, for that matter, the blood of the children thing, you know, they never, uh, at least I've never seen a direct reference in any of the QAnon stuff to, you know, the protocols of the elders of Zion. So where, how, how does anti-Semitism fit into this and where did it get injected into this? Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that, you know, every QAnon adherent is either aware or cognizant or necessarily is an anti-Semite themselves. However, the kind of structure of the narrative is built into it. And, I mean, it, it came in, I think, a little later than the original interest in this, uh, which, I mean, Q, it was more of a kind of game almost that, oh, let's figure out who this deep state is and who's going to be fighting the deep state. It was kind of like a secular thing, really, at the beginning, where Q uh, would post these things about, you know, an upcoming mass arrest that was going to happen. So I think early on, it was more of a kind of, you know, uh, more kind of, again, earthly, grounded political game of conspiracy. But then it began to broaden out more and got to have these kind of more salacious and also anti-Semitic historical frames attached to them around that. So I think, yeah, but it's mutated over time a bit. But really, at the core of it now is the kind of a desire to really almost fight and wage what I think is going to be, in their minds, a kind of spiritual war. I mean, they they talk about it this way. But the, the kind of structure of it involves almost three quasi, you almost say like biblical dimensions. One is the Great Awakening. They believe that like for some years now that people are undergoing a Great Awakening to to these horrible crimes that have been going on. And then they say what's going to happen because of this Great Awakening is going to be a mass movement to support a basically a military coup that they call the storm, a very grand metaphor there, and that we need to trust in this execution of this coup, which they call the plan. Right. So you trust in the plan. And that's what also makes it seem more than just a kind of game, that, war game that people were trying to figure out, like, you know, how is Trump going to fight off these uh, deep state figures? But when they put it into this really grand and epic kind of story, then we start seeing more of the even the kind of religious inflection to it. I've read op-eds or articles by people who are deep into gamer culture suggesting that perhaps this literally started out as kind of an online game, you know, a SimCity kind of thing. You know, let's let's create a reality here. Let's imagine it. Do you think there's truth to that? I mean, you know, when I first heard about it, it reminded me of those yeah, kind of like augmented reality games that used to be yeah, more Dungeons like, and Dragons. Uh, promotions. Yeah, exactly. That, and, and then they started using the internet, meaning like so promotional things for like Steven Spielberg's film AI used the kind of way that you do this kind of detective game online, and it's a way to kind of be a teaser or a trailer for the film. And so I thought, well, what is this film that's about to emerge that people are now playing this kind of investigation game for? But so it could have that those origins. It could have started as a prank. Um, Hang on, just a second. Uh, we'll be right back. Stick around. So what makes Trump supporters Trump supporters? Good question, right? Well, Psychology Today did a deep dive into a whole bunch of literature on this and a number of studies and concluded that there were five characteristics that crossed right across virtually all Trump supporters. And I do a deep dive on these on our video over at TomHartman.com today. But here's essentially what it says. Number one, they are authoritarians, by and large authoritarian followers. They want a strong father figure to make them feel safe. Number two, social dominance orientation. They believe in a caste system and they think they should be in the top caste. Number three, prejudice. They view people of other races poorly. Number four, intergroup contact. Most of them have never experienced significant contact with people of another race or people deeply different than them. And number five, relative deprivation. They feel like they've been screwed. They're not sure why. 
And Trump tells them, oh, it's those brown people. It's all over at TomHartman.com. And welcome back. Dr. Jack Bradich is with us about the QAnon conspiracy. Dr. Bradich, you were saying that there are basically three modules, as it were, three pieces uh, in sequence that by and large make up the Q conspiracy and Q movement, the Great Awakening, the Storm, and the Plan. Let's walk through those one at a time, if that's all right with you. Tell us about the Great Awakening. So the Great Awakening is almost like, you know, the moment of revelations. What's going to happen is that people who have been blindfolded throughout their lives are going to finally see the truth of how power works and to see the, the way that this cabal has, you know, run things for so long and how now this is the moment where people need to rise up against it, right? So that's the, that was the first phase. And I think this phase is kind of, uh, you know, it hit its peak, I would say, during, I would say, the lockdown and the, and the sort of quarantine times of COVID, where there was a real March spike. In March and April, yes. Uh, March, uh, when, when people were at home, they were, many of them were worried about the future. Many of them were lonely. And they started going online and finding this, this, this world that was telling them that how things really were and giving them some meaning and purpose and, so, and community, right? And so I think the Great Awakening was that kind of moment where revelations were beginning to be experienced in this way. And there was a deliberate effort to try to educate others, what they called red-pilling other people, red-pill your friends, red-pill your family, Right, which is to kind of, you know, proselytize, convince, persuade, some old fashioned kind of ways of getting people to be on board with your own belief system. And so that really kind of spiked in the spring and summer of 2020. So that was a great awakening. So, yeah. So with with regard to that, the extent to which Q has uh, QAnon has has provided people with a sense of community, number one, a sense of purpose and meaning, number two, and outlets for activism, number three. I I remember when I was a kid, uh, when I was like, you know, I mean, literally, you know, 12, 13 years old, 11 years old, my dad taking me to uh, Republican Party meetings in Lansing, Michigan, where we grew up, and that were in the neighborhood. I mean, you know, we went over to another guy's house and there was like six or eight people. All of them were men they, who were like, you know, real active in the Republican Party. And then there were, the, you know, a few of their wives would come along and, and it would kind of be, be more of a social time. I mean, keep in mind, this was the late 1950s, early 1960s. And I'm sure that the same thing was happening on the Democratic side. I'd have to ask my wife. Her, her father was the, the assistant attorney general for the state of Michigan. You know, he was a Democrat, political appointee. But the political party, the Republican Party, was giving my dad a sense of community and meaning and purpose and an outlet to be an activist, making him feel like he could actually change the world. And I felt that through him. I mean, we went door to door in 1964 when I was 13 years old for Barry Goldwater as part of that. To what extent do you think that the failure of political parties to do this kind of grassroots stuff and just to throw everything from the top down with a billion dollars worth of television advertising has created an opening for something like this? Oh, I think that's right on. I think the the parties, I think, you know, a way that much of U.S. society has created a sense of disenchantment and alienation. And so people figuring out where their purpose could be that could be aligned with some values, which could find also community, which could create a better world, has been, you know, broken up, has, people have been distracted, people have been overworked. I mean, there are many things that contribute to the inability to be able to, to sort of form that kind of world and that kind of life. So I think, you know, that's often been the case that other belief systems can show up in those moments that might even be anti-democratic in that sense. They're not part of the political system. In fact, they see maybe the entire political system as being part of the problem. And so they look to a higher purpose than the ones they would find in their everyday lives or in their civic duties or in their community relationships. I think that's, I mean, parties are certainly one element of that that has created a lot of anxiety and alienation in the world. And perhaps the collapse of church going in America? I mean, I'm sure that, too. The question is, what, depending on what those belief systems in those churches did, you know, I, I think that... And what are the that social also, forces you know, that are driving it? it? 
Exactly, exactly. I mean, I think people yeah. don't always need searches for that, but yes, they can find purpose life. We're talking with Dr. Jack Bradage, who has done a deep dive on QAnon with Rutgers University. We just talked about the Great Awakening. We'll talk about the storm and the plan right after this break. Stick around. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. In our conversations with the great minds today, Dr. Jack Bradich, Associate Professor of the Department of Journalism and Media Studies at Rutgers, is with us. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome to the Tom Hartman University Book Club. We're reading today from my book, Adult ADHD, the first edition, or the first draft or version of which I actually wrote some 20 years ago. But it's, you know, we've updated it and reissued it, and I think you'll find it really interesting. This is from the introduction. There's a substantial subpopulation of the world that has a common and somewhat consistent set of personality characteristics. These traits have, for many people, led to difficulties in school, relationships, and work and are collectively known among psychologists and psychiatrists as Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD. When researching this subject, I was struck by the number of ADHD adults I met and interviewed who'd chosen to become entrepreneurs, to strike out on their own, to forge their own unique lifestyles and businesses independent of others. Most often, these people are involved in an ever-changing life, often starting many businesses or regularly leading their existing companies in new directions. They thrive on stimulation and living on the edge. One biography of Ben Franklin asserts that he was America and possibly the world's first real entrepreneur. Because rather than simply learning a trade and opening a lifelong business, he learned dozens of trades and created more than 30 businesses, as well as social and governmental institutions, the post office, libraries, all kinds of things Ben Franklin created for this country. This creation is something new over and over again as the core of entrepreneurship, whether you're a company owner or an entrepreneur within a company where your job constantly involves new projects or change. When writing an earlier book, Attention Deficit Disorder, A Different Perception, I heard from a psychologist who specializes in ADHD that perhaps as many as half of all entrepreneurs have ADHD. Now, a few years later, and after conversations with thousands of entrepreneurs around the country, I've come to the conclusion that nearly all entrepreneurs have ADHD to one extent or another. And I would add probably the vast majority of salespeople as well. I'm not speaking here of the fellow who carefully invests his money in a corner dry cleaning shop, runs his own business on that corner for 25 years to finally retire comfortably. While that person may meet some definitions of entrepreneurship, I'd rather refer to him as an independent small business person. Such people constitute an important and stable core of the business life of their community and of this country. Instead, I'm speaking here of those individuals who create or participate in dynamic, thriving, ever-growing, ever-changing companies. I'm speaking of the ones who take chances, who experiment. Henry Ford, who had several bankruptcies before he hit on a formula that worked. 
Or Thomas Edison, who tried thousands of different variations before he could get a working light bulb. These people's lives are often littered with failures, but their successes have given a spark of vitality and enterprise to America and made our country, particularly in its early days, unique in the world. They continue to bring us innovation and change that give great hope and promise for the future of our nation and the world. Some have applied their entrepreneurial characteristics to become great leaders. John F. Kennedy and Winston Churchill, for example, stand out. Others have created inventions, businesses, social institutions, and art that have changed the world. This book is about people who have overcome their challenges and in many cases actually used aspects of their ADHD to achieve prosperity or victory and for those who would seek to emulate them. This book is for those who are willing to take chances to forge a new niche in this business, social, cultural, political, or art world or to create something new and how to do that successfully. In the writing of this book, I've interviewed many people in the business world, including some of America's greatest. Few would want to jump up and raise their hands and say, yes, I have something that psychiatrists call a disorder. Nonetheless, all were, to my mind, hunters, my term for people with attention deficit hyperactivity disorders described in this book, to one extent or another. They shared stories of their successes and failures from childhood through advanced age that were remarkably similar. From these stories and my own successes and failures as a business person and entrepreneur, I've assembled a collection of specific tools and techniques for people with ADHD to achieve success in the business world. And then, you know, we get into chapter one, the nature of ADHD. We all experience a spectrum of levels of states of consciousness as we go through moment to moment on daily life. On one end of the spectrum is the very open, distractible state that we experience when driving or walking on a busy street, noticing all the events around us, alert to everything in our environment. At the other end of the spectrum are the tightly focused states of consciousness in which we're so intent on the book we're reading or the conversation we're having that the ticking of the clock in the room or the drone of traffic outside ceases to exist. When in a normal and relaxed state of consciousness, most people fall into a place somewhere between these two extremes of open and focused. They shift from open to focused and back with relative ease. It's difficult for the average person, however, to maintain either an extremely focused or an extremely open state of consciousness for hours at a time without such things as meditation, training, or the use of drugs like caffeine. The natural tendency is to snap back to the center line between the two states, which is to have a little bit of both. Some people, however, have an off-center baseline state of consciousness as their norm. Estimates vary between experts and researchers, but these people may represent as few as 10 or as much as 40% of the population. And this is the beginning of that difference that makes for ADHD and how it can be a tool, a useful thing, something that can actually help people succeed in the world. So this is our book report, our book reading today from my book, Adult ADHD, How to Succeed as a Hunter in a Farmer's World. Welcome back. Dr. Jack Bradich is with us. He is a professor, associate professor at the Department of Journalism and Media Studies, the School of Communication and Information at Rutgers University, and has researched and written extensively about QAnon. His Twitter handle, J Bradich, J-B-R-A-T-I-C-H. Dr. Bradich, we've talked about the origins of QAnon, where it started with this message board, and I guess we haven't gotten into speculating about if there's more than one Q and who Q might be and what the motives are. In fact, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And then after that, I want to get into, we talked about the Great Awakening before the break. I want to get into the storm and the plan. So, But just to start out, what's the best information or the best guess that we have on who is Q or who is behind this, or even if there is one single person who's driving this train? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's the endless speculation. But I think the best sort of recent investigations into this involve Jim Watkins, I believe is his name, who runs 8Kun, which was the shift away from 8chan, one of these image boards where Q appears and makes his drops, or their drops, I should say, their drops. Is this the guy um, in the Philippines? So, yes, that's him. Okay. Is that basically one of his former colleagues and collaborators, they had a split. His name is Brendan, last name is Brendan has come out and basically said he thinks, and he has the has pretty solid evidence for the speculation, at least, that 
the only person who could control the codes, the trip codes they're called, right, to, to be able to post under Q is Watkins. And the way that it seems like there was a moment where when they split, he could tell that basically there was a lot going on with Q that seemed to be coming from the owners, basically, or the managers of the platform itself. So that's the sort of latest, and that's a kind of insider tale about it too, right, about who's sort of operating it now. Whether there were a number of people who were doing it at the beginning, I think what's happened now is that whoever is involved in it is quite aware of their power over a large network of people, many of whom have their own YouTube, or they used to have YouTube channels, but they have their own channels and accounts that interpret all of these Q codes. So there's a whole range of influencers who are kind of embedded in this. It's not just a bunch of followers, but it's just, uh, you know, it's a number of these intermediaries, too, that I think are worth paying attention to. And that's how a movement is built, too. So it's beyond Q, the individual. Now it's mostly these influencers who are shaping the movement. So there were, in the late part of the 19th and the early years of the 20th century, there were a number of religious figures who were talking about, well, basically that was the time period. There's about a 40, 50 year period there where the idea of the rapture came about. It literally hadn't been part of Christianity before that in its modern form, you know, where people will go up into the air and all this kind of stuff. And the sequence of things that have to occur before that, that, that kind of got formalized in 1974 with the late great planet Earth, Hal Lindsey. But since that kind of foundational point, and there were there were some foundational people, you know, Ellen White with the Seventh-day Adventists, and I forget the name of the guy who started the Jehovah's Witnesses, but there were all kinds of branches that came out of that. But over the years, what has happened is that they've split into, you know, a hundred different, so now you've got the, this televangelist with this sales pitch, you know, the prosperity gospel, and then there's this televangelist with the speaking in tongues gospel, and there's, you know, and so, like, are these like the influencers? I mean, is that sort of a org chart evolution kind of thing, sort of parallel to what's happening with Q? And if so, or even not if so, how many people are involved right now? How many people do you think are, quote, followers or curious participants with Q, QAnon versus uh, how many are influencers and like that? Right. I mean, that's a great question. It's hard to track, right? But you can track, I guess, through the, the number of you know, views and likes, and it seems to be in the millions, at least in terms of people who are, you know, QAnon curious enough to watch some of these more like bigger media channels within that community. I would say there are probably like 10 to a dozen of these main figures that people tend to gravitate towards. Who Some of them have daily news shows where they're interpreting the news. They're trying to relay it to the QAnon community. It's not always about just interpreting Q's drops, is what they call them, right? The clues they leave out, but also just decoding the news. And since you mentioned these different, you know, historical reference points, I think one that I find fascinating that I don't think people bring up so much, um, because it's also related to media and media forms, and that's Pat Robertson and the 700 Club and the Christian Broadcasting Network, insofar as he was able to understand the power of the medium um, and to bring his, you know, sort of apocalyptic Christian viewpoint, conservative viewpoint, um, not just as a kind of way to get a message out, but, he, you know, he created and bought an entire cable network, had, you know, programming during the day, and then every day he would also have the 700 Club, which would interpret the news for people. He also had, wrote a book called The New World Order, right? He's, he's really tied into some of mm-hmm. uh, this kind of longstanding thing, but I think he's one of these precursors insofar as he also understood the power of the medium at the time. At that point, you know, Christian Broadcasting Network, the popularity of, of cable, the early days of cable TV. Um, so, right. He so, also yeah, made so, a billion so think, dollars. You know, Pat Robertson did. You're listening to Tom Hartman. So we just put up a new video. It's over at TomHartman.com, or the links to it are over at TomHartman.com. And basically what I was talking about in it is, you know, kind of starting with the old saying from the late 60s, early 70s, what if they gave a war and no one came? What if a bunch of right-wing thugs showed up itching for a fight and were completely ignored. Historically, one of the most powerful ways to put someone down, essentially, is to shun them. In fact, you know, expelling people from communities among indigenous people is one of the worst punishments that there was. You turn your back on a dog when it's misbehaving, and it immediately gets that it's being shunned. We just need to shun these right-wingers. That's, that's where we need to start. So anyhow, you can, you can check out the whole thing over at TomHartman.com. 
And uh, it's all over at TomHartman.com. Tom Hartman here with you. A lot going on in the world. And, you know, let's talk about it. I'm assuming probably some of these influencers are starting to get pretty good sized checks from from uh, YouTube or whatever. I mean, is, is there evidence that there's a financial motive now? Like we're seeing, you know, fairly obviously among some of the, the so-called Christian televangelists. And now, you know, we see with these scandals around Jerry Falwell Jr. and Billy Graham's son, you know, Franklin Graham, that, you know, oh, they were just hustlers. They're just in it for the bucks. Yeah, I think I think there are a number of folks. I mean, I mean, this is also like, yeah, when something like this emerges, huckster capitalism comes into play and people want to come in and make a buck. I think that's going to be standard. I think some of the more major ones are true believers, though, or at least they're spending a lot of effort. And it's hard to tell what kinds of monetary gain they're getting, especially now that they've been so many of them have been demonetized from places like YouTube or deplatformed from some of the major tech platforms. But there's always going to be hustlers and grifters involved in this. And and the fact that it's hard to tell the difference is precisely part of the issue. So tell us about the storm. Okay, the storm, because I also do want to get to the plan, because that's more about the election, I think. Mm -hmm. The storm is the belief that there's going to be a kind of massive arrest, mostly by loyalists to Donald Trump, mostly in the military, who are going to unseal all of these alleged indictments, at least 200,000 indictments, which will definitively prove these kind of criminal acts by Democrats, right? So the belief is that the moment that happens, and we don't know when that moment's going to happen, that's part of it, right? But they're waiting maybe for, for Trump himself to announce that the storm has arrived. They made a big deal. It's like the rapture. Um, it's, it's very much the rapture. Absolutely. This is this very much that kind of millennial and apocalyptic version of Christianity here. Yeah, for sure. And it's going to be a massive thing, and the world will become a better place. That's the other part. It is this kind of utopic moment. The good will finally triumph over evil, and that's the storm. And the, right now we're in the calm before the storm. That's the, one of their ongoing mantras, right? And now it's the calm before the storm. So have they appropriated Christian mythology in this regard, or is this something that is just archetypal? I mean, is it part of lots and lots of religions? I'm guessing it is. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it's archetypal. Some of them have specifically talked about being saved. So I think some of them have actually gone through a conversion process. Some of them are already uh, evangelical Christian as well. So I think it's it's both deep-seated, but also very specific to now. Remarkable stuff. We're talking with Dr. Jack Bradage, Associate Professor at the Department of Journalism and Media Studies, School of Communication and Information at Rutgers University. Jay Bradage is his Twitter handle. And we will be back. We're going to get into the plan. Stick around. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. We're doing a deep dive on QAnon today. Stick around. We'll be right back. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. On this week's Science Revolution, why are the Republicans saying the mask mandate is anti-freedom? If you're hooked up to a ventilator and you can't breathe, you're not free. 
The Republican idea of freedom is literally killing us. Nick Dearden with Global Justice Now joins me to ask who should own the COVID vaccine that was funded by We the People. Plus, Teresa Brown, RN, author of Critical Care, drops in to explain why the COVID task force needs nurses. There's a lack of nursing representation despite their essential and visible role on the front line of this national pandemic, and that needs to be fixed ASAP. Tune into the Science Revolution wherever fine podcasts are available. I'm speaking at the Bioneers 2020 conference. It's running December 5th and 6th and 12th and 13th. My keynote is how all life is organized around democracy. So, Dr. Bradich, comparing QAnon to some of the aspects of Christianity, and I use that as an example because I think most Americans are, have some level of familiarity with it, with some of the component organizations within Christianity that, that you could arguably call a cult. And I'm thinking of some of these televangelists and, I mean, obviously Jim Jones, you know, he was a Christian preacher. There's no shortage of, of scandal and stuff around them. Is there... If you look at these Christian cults, these religious cults, typically uh, they emerge based on a foundational theology for which there's a broad consensus, um, you know, just the, the basic tenets of Christianity. And then the leader purports to have a special understanding or secret knowledge and imparts that to his followers. And then the followers basically detach themselves from the mainstream of Christianity and realign their personal identity and spiritual identity with this new cult and cling tenaciously to it, even when people discover that Kenneth Copeland you know, has a private jet and, or uh, Jim Baker has a mistress or, I mean, you know, fill in the blanks, right? But there's still that sense of identity. Has QAnon missed any of the pieces here? Because it kind of looks like you could just construct this as as a flow chart and say, you could do this with anything. You know, you could do this around politics. You could do this around religion. You could do this around, um, you know, worshiping nature, I, you know, whatever. Is QAnon that conventional? Yeah, um, it, it kind of is insofar as the worldview is not that elaborate. I mean, there aren't these great texts. There aren't these great writings, and what there are are these, like, yeah, little clues in, in coded language. There are some videos, right, video documentaries, and there are very few kind of, like, core things that people even, you know, watch or read together to even have that kind of common purpose. It's really decentralized. It's really a distributed movement, which makes it fascinating in that way. So I don't, it's hard to tell, like, what everyone's, kind of investment is in this, spiritually speaking, mm-hmm. right? I mean, uh, yeah. I, I will say just briefly that, that, you know, one of the interesting recent things that, that has caused some controversy is the way that QAnon has infiltrated or moved into the yoga community and the health and wellness community around yoga and spirituality. Really? So it's not just, yeah, it's, it's been a big controversy in that community about how much um, it has moved in. So that's another story as well, the different kinds of transcendence and spirituality that can that can be sort of appropriated or moved in. So it's not always the most conventional kinds that we might think of. That's remarkable. Are there other subcultures that, that it's popping up in? I just read something that um, that QAnon is making moves into, into sex workers, sex worker communities. I mean, every community can oh. be sort of touched by QAnon. I mean, nothing is really immune unless you're sure. deliberately trying to be aware of it. Yeah, as, uh, particularly because it's essentially a secular religion, so you don't have to sacrifice previous beliefs. It, it, it's, it's remarkable. Okay, we're going to get into the plan right after this. Uh, Dr. Jack Bradish is with us. Stick around. Welcome to the Tom Hartman University Book Club. We're reading from Death in the Pines, a novel set in Vermont. You have to be crazy to do this. On a morning when the Vermont winter sun shone pale and weak across six crisp inches of fresh snow, when the temperature hovered somewhere between 20 and 25 degrees Fahrenheit, I spent a long time searching for 10 stones. 
They had to be the right stones of a certain weight and shape, heavy but not so heavy they exhausted me, rounded but not so much that they would roll from the place I set them. It took hours to find all ten of them, searching in the sheltered places where the dry, powdery snow was easier to scrape aside. Then they had to be lugged to the spot I had selected, mindless beast of burden work that made me sweat inside my downline jacket. I stacked the stones carefully into a hollow, truncated pyramid. Anyone coming across that pile of stones in ten or a hundred years would know they weren't dropped there haphazardly by a retreating glacier. This was a made thing, too small to be a cairn, too insignificant to be the remnants of a wall. I guess you could call it an altar. The ashes were in a bronze urn, far too small to contain the spirit of my friend John Lincoln. The container had stood on the shelf in my cabin for too many months. The new year had just arrived, and with it a belated first snowfall of the season, and the combination of the two had finally persuaded me it was time to do something about the urn. Holding it in the chill, near silence of the forest, I stood over the structure I'd made and looked off into the distance, seeing but not seeing the brownish shafts of pines streaked with snow, the bare gray trunks of maples, the white and gray columns of birch, the deep-shaded greens of white-burdened firs. At that moment, the urn felt heavier than the stones themselves. This was why I was here. The mind drifts at such times. Even after six years, I could recall the particular night that had caused me to travel to this place. On that night, my mentor, no, by that time my friend, John and I had been slumped in the rotting front seat of an ancient rusting 55 Ford parked in the heavy, humid midnight of Central America. Despite the choking reek of insect repellent, voracious mosquitoes whined in through the open windows, and from time to time we slapped an offender, reducing it to a crumble of tissue to be flicked off with a fingertip still warmer than blood heat even at that hour. The dark air sizzled with cicadias. We had left our home base in Atlanta a week before and had taken a circuitous route to this dark clearing hacked from the jungle. We were waiting for either three or four men to emerge from a blacked-out warehouse, and we had no idea whether those men knew we were watching or how well they might be armed. What we would do depended on how many came out. If only three, we'd move in and recover what had been stolen. Four would make the recovery problematic because that would mean that at least one of the men would be a local, complicating the calculus of violence. As I stood over the stone altar, every detail of our conversation went through my mind. A tape rewound and replayed. By that point in our lives, John and I had been partners for so long that we didn't BS each other, had no need to strain for machismo, no use for phony heartiness. We were a good team. We could finish each other's sentences, catch body language signals that amounted to a silent code, recognize unspoken concerns and anxieties in time to be prepared for the unexpected. We told all our jokes to each other years before. Once in a while, one of us might mutter two or three words of a punchline. The other would chuckle in appreciation or exasperation as the mood took him. That night in stop-and-start fashion, we had each spoke of good times we'd had. Waiting in the dark gave each of us a natural urge to talk. That was the one and only time that John had spoken of his quiet way in the forested hills of Vermont thinking of the coolness of a New England autumn in that hellish tropic night. I'd never known that he'd been to Vermont. He had lived in Buckhead, a suburb of Atlanta, the whole time I'd known and worked with him. But in those suffocating hours of darkness, cool green Vermont was on his mind. Beautiful place, very peaceful, he said. I'd like to go back there when it's all over. I didn't have time to ask what he meant or what would be over. The job, the summer, the career, the life. At that moment, dim yellow light from a kerosene lantern appeared on the black face of the warehouse, first a line, then a thin rectangle, then a fat square as the three men inside pushed open the double doors. John and I climbed out of our borrowed car and did our job. In the six years that followed that night, John never had gone back to Vermont, had never spoken of it again. And now, for him, it really was all over. After the memorial service, after the will was probated, I didn't feel like hanging around Atlanta. So I made arrangements, gave most of my liquid assets to a community for abused kids in New Hampshire, and bought a cabin on 200 acres in the woods of Vermont. It was here I'd brought my old friend to the place he'd talked about. Pondering the finality of it all, I held the urn containing his ashes, a few bone fragments and pieces of his teeth, ready to fulfill a promise I had never made. Such a time demands words. I took a deep breath of icy air and looked up toward the top of a towering birch, A squirrel made an untidy, tangled nest up there in the highest branches, and the animal itself, or maybe another squirrel, who could tell, hung below the nest, head down in the trunk, apparently gazing at me. I imagined the squirrel's bright black eye held accusation. 
fall had gone on so long, probably for half the animal's lifetime. So what was the idea of all this snow? Was I to blame? Clearing my throat, I reached far back into memory, groping for the prayers I had last recited as a child. I heard myself say, Dear God, my words took flight toward the washed-out sky on puffs of vapor. As far as I could tell, no one heard them but me and the squirrel. My voice had a harsh tone even to my own ears, a rusty hinge catch. The book is Death in the Pines. It's an Oakley Tyler novel based in Vermont. Hey, Tom Hartman here. Just wanted to give you a heads up that Sue, who works on our newsletter, has just been doing an extraordinary job. We have an absolutely free newsletter. You can subscribe to it over at TomHartman.com. And every day she puts together what we call Sue's Daily Stack. It's literally a link to every story I have referenced on the air in the program. And you know, she compiles these throughout the program and then gets the newsletter together and it goes out an hour or two after the show is off the air. And it's just absolutely extraordinary and something I think you'll find really useful. Uh, no charge for that. So we're trying to get the word out. There's so many ways to communicate these messages. So just check it out at TomHartman.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Dr. Jack Bradage of Rutgers University about QAnon, the whole QAnon conspiracy thing. Dr. Bradage, we've got about, I guess, seven or eight minutes here until we hit the end of the hour. We've talked about the Great Awakening. We've talked about who Q is or might be, who the followers are and how they get acquired. We were just talking about how this QAnon conspiracy movement religion is starting to infiltrate the yoga community, the health and wellness community, even the sex worker community. It could pop up in any secular or even religious subculture in the United States. But what's the plan? What's the final piece of the QAnon conspiracy theory or movement or whatever you want to call it? Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's this is where the really it becomes a kind of faith based movement, because the plan is something you can't know. You just have to trust that it's happening. Right. This is where the deep faith comes in of even some of the kind of predecessors that you've mentioned. Right. The ones who are making prophecies and predictions that don't come true. Right. Instead, wrong predictions, unexpected obstacles are all seen as part of the plan. We just don't know it yet, right? I'm speaking as pretend I'm a human operator. We can't know the plan. We can only trust the plan. That's their phrase, trust the plan. So what that means then is that failures become just one more move in the plan. And guess who knows what the plan really is? They believe that Donald Trump is the genius that he is. They call him a 5D chess master, right? He knows the plan. And so all these things that are happening right now around the election are actually part of the plan, even though we might not know the details of it. So this is why QAnon has also been very active after November 3rd this year, after the election. So I think they have a significant role to play in this post-election time and in time of chaos to link it to other things you were talking about in this show and other shows around a potential coup attempt or attempt at blocking the election results. And so I think one of that part of that plan, one of the things that QAnon is doing, and I've been watching some of these kind of videos and podcasts and listening to the podcast recently, is they're trying to provide comfort and support to the followers right now. This is why they say trust the plan. Take it easy. It's okay. It's happening. It's a salve in that way. It's part of salvation, right? Mm -hmm. It's a moment of recuperating. It's going to be okay. Things are being handled. Don't get worried, right? Stay home with your families. Enjoy life for a bit. Things are going to work out for Trump, right? So I think for me, this into a different narrative than what people are saying, like, oh, you know, Republicans are going through the processes, the five stages of grief. I'm not sure if QAnon is. I think QAnon might be going through something else, which is the feeling of what it meant to be there on Holy Saturday. After Good Friday and before the resurrection, there's this day where it's neither one, right? And so I think many of them are in this kind of interminable moment of waiting for the grand uh, revelation um, to happen. So that's one of the things. It reminds me of Ellen White with the Seventh-day Adventists. But, you know, Pat Robertson stepped into, you know, that void with Christianity and made a billion dollars. Do you think that this is Donald Trump's next big grift 
that after he leaves office, he's going to hint that he actually is who Q says he is and he's going to start monetizing this base? I think it would be very shortly, I believe, that he will at least acknowledge QAnon more directly and say either that he's been aware of everything and he's been behind the scenes or at least say that he's a major supporter. And that will be a sign for the supporters of something that they've been looking forward to, right? A major moment of proper, actual, direct recognition. Right now, I think what they're acting on his behalf, whether direct or not, is to create a kind of static and a kind of interference right now, to flood the zone with all kinds of details as a way to do what he, I think, is trying to do right now, which is, you mentioned before, it's not a classic coup in the same sense. It's a way of blocking things from happening. It's a way of blocking certification and ratification. How do you block those? You create uncertainty. And if you can get enough static, and QAnon is producing a lot of static around the election results and election counting, then that's the thing that might end up getting them what they've been wishing for, which is the victory. That's remarkable. And it just seems like it's custom made for Donald Trump's next big grift. I mean, you know, he's extracted that we know of, you know, at least $130 million from the U.S. taxpayer just by having Secret Service stay at his hotels and things like that. It's just amazing. Dr. Jack Radish, thanks so much for dropping by today. It's been great talking with you. Thank you very much, Tom. Thank you. Dr. Jack Braddich, he's the associate professor at the Department of Journalism and Media Studies, School of Communication and Information at Rutgers University. Jay Braddich is his Twitter handle. And uh, thanks for being with us today. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us, and that includes you. So get out there, get active, tag your it. We'll see you tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, have a great afternoon. Be good to yourself. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.